you guys. This is week 35 of Creative Come Follow Me for the Old Testament. And we are in our third of three sections of the book of Psalms. So hopefully you don't have your cup quite full yet because I've got a bunch more goodness to dump into it. When I when I think of the Psalms, and again, if you missed the, the last two lessons, you may want to go and listen to the first few minutes of each lesson to kind of catch up on what the Psalms are for and why we study them. But I think especially this week, you're going to get kind of a a smattering of songs. I'm not sure the right way to say it, but you know when you turn on the radio and you don't know if you're going to get a love song or like a ballad or like a pop song, you just kind of are along for the ride? That's how I feel like you should approach the Psalms because you sort of get a variety pack today of Psalms of praise and Psalms of thanksgiving and Psalms of lament and sorrow. And you sort of just want to go with the flow because I found if you just kind of dig deeper, you actually can pull goodness out of all of them. In fact, I had to edit heavily what I'm able to say in these videos just because there's so much. There were so many verses that jumped out at me as something that I could apply to my life today. So don't don't short sell Psalms. I know you've been in them for a while and you probably got your bearings pretty well. This is a week you don't want to miss. So grab your scriptures, grab the notes if you can open them up on an iPad or something so you can easily scroll through them. That will help you. And let's dive into this third section of the book of Psalms. Where we kick things off in 102, I feel like it's almost like you turned on the radio and Adele was singing because it has this kind of deep, rich, plaintive tone. I, I wonder, I don't know the backstory. We never know the backstory of what's happening in the psalmist's life that makes them write this beautiful song, but clearly it's hard. I, I sort of wonder if it's something physical because of the way he or she speaks. They're teaching about how they really want to see the face of the Lord. They want to hear the Lord. They want to feel him close. All of They talk about their sorrow mixing in with their tears. And then there's this interesting one at 11. This is what gives me that clue that maybe it's a physical ailment. He says, my days are like a shadow that decline it, and I am withered like grass. It almost seems like their own body is starting to fail, and they can start to, they're starting to appreciate their own finitude <laughs> that their body is going to give out at some point, and it cannot withstand. And this is that, that's the sorrowful Adele part. And then I feel like you hit the chorus, and it's like this sweeping, but there is hope. It's this belting out of hope that I love. It starts around verse 12. But thou, O Lord, shalt endure forever, and thy remembrance unto all generations. It's hope in the Lord. Even if I decline and wither away like grass, he stays. And it gets even stronger, a bigger crescendo in 13. Thou shalt arise and have mercy upon Zion. That phrase, thou shalt arise, I feel like is one of the most hope-filled in all scripture especially if you're in a situation where your own body is failing or somebody you love, their body is failing. This promise of at some point in the future, the Lord will arise. Resurrection is real and bodies will be restored. That is a phenomenal promise to someone who is struggling with physical illness. I also love that it says it'll happen in a set time. That's in the middle of 13. Because I think that promise is that the Lord knows all things, that he's aware of all things. When you're struggling with physical ailments or watching someone else do it, to know that all things are in the hands of the Lord and there is a set time for things is comforting doctrine. So you'll see that in Psalm 102. When you flip the page, it gets even stronger. It's this promise of millennial reign. So you'll see him start to talk about what's going to happen in the future. So around 16, when the Lord shall build up Zion, he shall appear in his glory. This is 
You know, he can feel the chorus surging. In 17, he will regard the prayer of the destitute and not despise their prayer. And then 18, this shall be written for the generations to come. I think when we are struggling with our own mortal limits, to appreciate the fact that this gospel will carry on beyond us for generations to come is comforting doctrine. That's something you can have hope in, even if you can't have hope in your own healing or, you know, that things are going to get better. I think you can take hope in the fact that the Lord is coming, bodies will be resurrected, and the gospel will carry on after your God. That's an incredible promise. Um, so when you go a little further, you'll see even bigger promises about the millennium. One of my favorite ones comes later, though, and that's in from like 22 to 28. This is when he talks about things changing. It's a shift from you know, the, their current state to something celestialized. As we know, the, the earth itself is going to become celestialized. It'll become perfected. And I don't know why this hit me this time differently than it has in the past. But remember when we were studying the creation story in Moses 2, and it, over and over again, God would say, and it was good. You know, he would proclaim things that were created as good. And I always kind of wondered, like, why did he make that word? <laughs> it seems kind of eh, good, you know? I'm sure it was really good, but it's, it's just an interesting word choice. And it wasn't until I read these verses that I understood that it's when things are perfected that they become better than good. Everything that has been created is good and has the potential to be perfect. It just needs to progress to that point, including us. We are good. The creations he made are good, but we need to become perfected. We need to become full, and that's going to come over time, and it can't come until after this millennial reign. So I love that you see that in 102. When you go a little more into 103, there's a few key things you don't want to miss in 103. This is David singing a psalm of praise. One of the things I think is cool about the way David teaches is he doesn't just tell us how much he loves God. He tells us why he loves God. So as you go through that verse or the verses in 103, watch for the reasons why David loves God. You'll see them all over the place, but like three, he forgiveth all iniquities. He healeth diseases. Four, he redeemeth my life and crowneth with loving kindness. These are the reasons why he loves God. And I guess I thought that was a powerful teaching tool because as I'm testifying to my kids, it's one thing to say, I know the church is true. I believe in God. I feel the love of God. It's a whole other thing to say why I believe those things, to give you the, the backstory of how I understand it and how I came to know it. So I thought that was a powerful teaching guidance. In fact, you get a little more guidance as you go further into 103. This is where I feel like one of the things David praises the Lord for is that he has this incredible mercy and loving kindness. And then he tells us how he pulls it up. And I thought it was parenting wisdom 101. In fact, that's what I kind of wrote in my side margin. Because he teaches you, like round eight, the Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and plenteous in mercy. I think that's excellent parenting advice that we need to be slow to anger and that our mercy needs to be big because you're going to need it over and over again. You go a little further into nine, neither will he keep his anger forever. He's not going to hold a grudge against us. That's good parenting wisdom. There's a bunch more. If you go in the notes, you can see more. But one of my favorites is in 14, where he talks about how he pitieth or he has compassion for in 13, his children. And then 14, why he has compassion is because he knows our frame and remembers that we are dust. <laughs> I just, you know, I just think there's, he knows we are frail and limited. I think that's why he calls us sheep and children so often in the scriptures, because we are limited in what we can do. And he understands that, which gives him compassion. The same way I treat little kids' choices differently than I treat older kids' choices, because I know they're limited in their frame. And I just, I think there's 
there's peace in that promise that when I make dumb mistakes, even repeated dumb mistakes, that I'm limited in my frame and he understands that and he will help me along. I kind of love that piece of it. You go a little further and you'll see like from 17 to 19, that this loving kindness, this mercy is contingent on a few things. I don't think God's love is contingent on things. I think he will love us always, no matter what. But I do think if we want this loving kindness and mercy to be extended to us, there are some things we need to do. And you're going to find those in those verses. So it advises you to fear him or to have reverence for him. It advises, advises you to make and keep covenants so that you can come closer to him, become more like him. And then my favorite one is around uh, the end of 18. It says, remember his commandments to, and to do them. That's a big piece of, if we hope to qualify for this never ending bounteous mercy, that's our part. We need to honor him. We need to keep our covenants. We need to choose to be like him. We need to remember him and do what he would have us do. I think that's excellent parenting guidance. Psalm 110 is a lot shorter. It's only seven verses, but it's got some really powerful doctrine in it. So you don't want to miss it, especially if you look at one and two and also four. One and two reference the Godhead. This is critical because it's actually, this Psalm is the one that's quoted in the New Testament. When the Savior is trying to teach the Pharisees about who he is, especially who he is related to God the Father, these are the verses that he uses to try and help them understand. Which I think is interesting knowing that these are songs, right? I wonder if the Pharisees knew these melodies and knew these songs and now we're just starting to connect the dots at least his apostles must have right that they would know these songs and they would be connecting the dots of oh this is the one this is the man um so you're gonna see that if you go in the notes i kind of break it down a little bit more but it's teaching you about the difference between god and the lord jesus christ so you'll see that in the verses another pivotal point of doctrine happened in four when you learn about this being he jesus christ being a high priest after the order of melchizedek there's only a couple of references to Melchizedek at all in the Old Testament, but thankfully we have a lot more when you go into modern revelation. The Book of Mormon, Doctrine and Covenants, even the Pearl of Great Price help us understand what this ancient priesthood is, this eternal priesthood, and why Jesus Christ is the great high priest. So go in the notes if you want to dig deeper, but there are some key things in 110 that you definitely don't want to miss. It's a shame I'm going to have to go fast through these because I really love these psalms. Psalm 116 starts out really strong. This is in the first few verses he talks about how much he loves God. I love the Lord because he hath heard my voice. That's verse 1. And my supplications. Verse 2. Because he hath inclined his ear unto me, therefore will I call upon him as long as I live. And then he talks about all the troubles he's seen. It almost has reminded me of if you've seen somebody get up to bear their testimony and they begin with this powerful testimony that they know God lives and then they tell you the backstory of how they know God lives. And then they finish up their testimony with, I know God lives. It's this testimony sandwich that I just think is so powerful. That's what you'll get in 116. He talks about the sorrows he felt, how he felt close to death. Death compassed me in verse 3. The pains of hell got hold of me. I found trouble and sorrow. And then in 4, he prays for deliverance for his soul. And then he just praises, gracious is the Lord and righteous. Yea, our God is merciful. He preserveth the simple. I think what's interesting is what you see at the end of verse six. The Lord preserved the simple. I was brought low and he helped me. Oftentimes, I think when I think of deliverance, I think of pulling me out of a problem <laughs> or the Red Sea parting. That's deliverance. What this is saying is sometimes deliverance comes when you are brought even lower and then you connect. 
one of the reasons I think Heavenly Father doesn't yank us out of our adversities, even when he didn't intend for them to happen, is because he knows they will bring us to him. And that's what I feel like happened with the psalmist. That's why his testimony can begin with, I love the Lord, no matter how many hard things he's faced, because he has come to know the Lord in his adversities. Eight is where you hear him testify. For thou hast delivered my soul from death, mine eyes from tears, and my feet from falling. I'm like a heart. On the, I just love the way it's phrased. Then you get to see at the end of 116 where he wants to pay back. Uh, most of us feel this, especially when you felt the Lord's mercy and forgiveness. You want to offer something in return. What's great to me is that Psalm 116 teaches us how to do that. So if you look in 13, I well, 12 is where he asks the question, what shall I render unto the Lord for all his benefits toward me? And then 13 is the beginning of the answer. I will take the cup of salvation and call upon the name of the Lord by choosing to accept his gift, this gift of the atonement of Jesus Christ, we are showing gratitude by using it in our life. It reminded me of, I had a situation with Will this week where he's on mountain biking team for his high school and they have hard rides. And right now it's still hot, like 90 degrees when they go out to ride. So I've been, you know, pumping the pantry full of like good nutritious things and Gatorade so that he can make it through practice. And then he had a practice just this last week where he he didn't crash physically, but his body crashed and he couldn't finish practice. In fact, I had to go and pick him up early because he was just completely depleted. So we, it wasn't until Jason started talking to him about what he was eating that we figured out what happened. So he had basically come home from school where he didn't eat lunch and had a piece of angel food cake and like a donut or something and then went on his ride. And so we had to kind of stir it again. And I found myself being so frustrated. I'm like, well, I have stocked the pantry full of good things for you to eat. Just the way that you can show me gratitude is just to actually consume them. I think sometimes we think that the atonement of Jesus Christ is something we should only use in desperation or when things are awful. And I think he's trying to teach us, look, I've stocked the pantry with mercy and loving kindness and forgiveness. Come and partake. That's the, that's the godly worship. He wants us to partake of this gift, and that's how we show gratitude to him. I just love that principle. We're going to talk about it again in the object lessons with Elder Wilcox's piano analogy, but I love how you see it here. He also talks about sacrifice and making vows. Oh, that's in 116. When you jump into 117, it's a lot shorter. It's only two verses. But one of the powerful parts of 117 is in verse 2. It says, For his merciful kindness is great towards us, and the truth of the Lord endureth forever. I think this is a really pivotal doctrine. Thankfully, because of what we studied in Doctrine and Covenants, this is clearer in my mind than it ever was before. But if you look in DNC 9324, it talks about how we know what the truth is. Do you know how President Nelson talked about this at a conference? He said, there is absolute truth. The world today teaches us that there is no real, in fact, I, I read a whole article about post-truth, that we live in a post-truth world. It was the word of the year a couple of years ago for Webster. That's not what President Nelson teaches or any of the apostles. They are teaching that there is absolute truth. And we find it when we read this verse in the Doctrine and Covenants. It teaches us that things, the truth is things as they are, as they were, and as they are to come. Things that are true have always been true and will always be true. It's really tempting, I think, especially for this younger generation to get a little bit of myopia and to think that the truth is defined by my time, my history, my period of time on this earth. And truth goes far back and far beyond. So I think that's those are critical doctrines to teach together. When you go a little further, this is 118. This is a messianic psalm. So it's going to teach us something about either the life of the Messiah or his mission, his work. 
It also will kind of feel like a camp song because <laughs> you're going to hear the same refrain over and over again. It's a song that has always at the end of each verse, his mercy endureth forever over and over again. And to be totally honest with you guys, I kind of got tired. <laughs> you know how sometimes when you like the sip and cider camp song, like you can only hear that refrain so many times without being like, I got it. <laughs> I kind of felt that way when I was reading these verses, although they were lovely. I started to wonder, why do we say this so many times? And you guys, it took me cleaning carpets to figure this out. So here's what happened. So against my better judgment, I bought red soda. It was on clearance. It was just a moment of weakness. I bought red diet soda that the kids could drink. Violet, of course, snuck it upstairs and opened it and spilled it all over the carpet in her room. This light beige carpet. So thankfully she came and she told me all about it. And we went up there with the steamer and I'm steaming out all the red that I can get out. And honestly, by the end of like 20 minutes or so, it looked pretty good. It looked just like the carpet it had looked like before. So I thought, oh good, we've got the stain out. It's no no crisis. It's going to be okay. Ironically, the next day, Violet comes kind of creeping back into my office and she says, hey mom, you know that stain that we got out yesterday? I think it's back. And sure enough, I go upstairs. There's this it's lighter, but it's this light pink stain in that exact same area right back on the carpet that I just cleaned the day before. And I found myself so frustrated. <laughs> so I'm like, I just, I cleaned this. The water was coming up clear and how is it pink again? So clearly it's deep in the pad or something. And then I go back to my scripture study and I realize, oh, maybe this is what we're praising. When the Lord says he can take things from white, or sorry, from scarlet to white, his promise is that those things that are white will never be red again. They will never even have a tinge of pink. If you are forgiven of a sin and you have come, you've used the atonement of Jesus Christ to help clean you, you don't have to fear. His mercy endureth forever. His promise of forgiveness is everlasting. You will never veer back into this dingy pink. You will stay white as long as you fulfill your end of the parking, right? I just... Love that piece. I think that's why we do home-centered learning, because I think the Lord is so good at teaching us with whatever we are surrounded in. And for me, it was dirty carpet. So hopefully that helps read you. There's much more in this chapter that I don't want you to miss, but sadly, I don't have time to go into all of it. You'll learn a little bit more in 118 about the gates being open. Um, this is speaking about the gate of when the Savior crosses over and is able to be resurrected, and the gate of death and hell is open. You know, this idea of like, okay, now the, those boundaries that used to exist are no longer there for us. You'll see a little bit of that prophecy in 119. Um, you'll also see prophecy about him being the chief cornerstone. We're going to talk about this in the object lesson, so I won't go into it too deep now, but I do love what you learned here, that that the stone that the builders cast off will become this chief cornerstone. Speaking again of the Messiah and how so many among his old people would cast him aside and try to quiet him, that he will indeed become this, this key pivotal stone that will hold the whole framework together. So we'll learn about that more in the object lessons. You're going to have to prepare yourself mentally for 119. You guys, it's really long. Really, really long. Um, I'm not sure why this almost wrote it this way. I know there's an acrostic component to this where if you look, there's chunks of eight verses and they all begin with a certain letter of the Hebrew alphabet and that's kind of where this psalm comes from but there is it, after you've read a few they all kind of start to mush together <laughs> that sounds terrible but you know if you've ever been to like a really great museum and 
you see some masterpieces that you've studied all your life and you're like, oh my word, this is amazing. I'm seeing these in person. And then you go to another room and another room and another. And after a while, all these amazing masterpieces start to kind of seem the same. That's sort of what will happen in 119, unless you break it apart. So that's why I spent a lot of time in the notes breaking down 119. As intimidating of a chapter as this was to tackle, there is so much goodness in it. I wish I could take a half an hour of my time just on 119 because that's how much I found. I'm going to try and go through just a few things so you don't miss it. But just know this is like 170 verses. It's it's going to take us a minute to get through 119. So a few things you're going to want to watch for. I love what I found in verse 10. So there, there's even more at the beginning. But one of the things I love in verse 10 is, With my whole heart have I sought thee. Oh, let me not wander from thy commandments. This sounded to me like, Come thou fount of every blessing. You know that song? We sing that at girls camp one year as a stake. And I still love it for that. It's this pleading to, I know I'm weak. Please help me stay strong. I think you see the same thing with the apostles in the New Testament where they where they ask, Lord, is it I? You know, it's just this, I think it's a state of humility that we're all supposed to be in. So you get a feel for that in verse 10. Another one I love is a constant pleading for their eyes to be opened and for understanding to come. So if you look at around verse 18 and 34, I actually have those kind of connected together in my verses, but they plead for understanding when they don't know why something's happening or how long it's going to happen. They, they plead for their, their eyes to be opened. That's an 18. The reason they want their eyes to be opened is so that they can behold wondrous things out of thy law. I think sometimes, especially when the commandments feel constraining, this is the prayer I should have. If the commandments are feeling like they're limiting God's compassion or limiting my joy, I should be praying for my eyes to be opened. Because I, I know, because I know the nature of God, that there must be wondrous things. There must be wondrous reasons for this commandment to exist. So I love that that's what the psalmist is teaching us. They're praying for that eye-opening understanding. You see it again in 27. It says, make me to understand the way of thy precepts so that I can walk or so I can talk of thy wondrous works. He wants to share the gospel. He wants to teach people about it, but he wants to make sure he knows it first. Um, and then he talks about the value of the law. The visual that really helped me, I love what you see in 32. I will run the way of the commandments when the Lord shall en shall enlarge my heart. I actually have a heart drawn on this. <laughs> Not that that sounds super girly, but I, it's, I love the concept of enlarging my heart. What it reminded me of is I bought a new suitcase when I started speaking at Time Out for Women this year. I got a new suitcase. I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm traveling. This is so fun. And I packed it full of stuff. And then when I got to Time Out for Women, I ended up buying a blanket and a sweater and all this stuff. So then I went to repack my bag on the way home and I couldn't fit it in my suitcase. Turns out a big fleece blanket takes up a lot of space. But I was struggling. So I'm like, what do I need to get rid of? Clearly, I'm going to have to let something go. And I wasn't going to let go of that blanket. So I was considering leaving like the pants I only sort of liked and in the hotel room so that I could have room for this blanket. Ironically, at the last minute, I noticed that there's this second zipper. Remember, it's a new suitcase. So I didn't appreciate this. There's a second zipper. I pull the zipper and it expands like three inches. All of a sudden, everything can fit. That I feel like is the promise that you sign, they feel in these verses. The Lord is saying, if you feel constrained, if you feel like you have to chop up the gospel in order to fit it in your heart, if you feel like you have to chop off principles of the gospel, or I can't go to the temple, it's just the temple's not for me, or I don't understand how the, the church feels about gender, the gospel must not be for me. What he's asking you to do is hold on to your faith and ask for the Lord to enlarge your heart. There are an infinite number of zippers, <laughs> expansion pockets on our hearts to contain the gospel. The gospel doesn't need to be changed in order to fit in our hearts. Our hearts have to expand in order to hold it all. 
because it is marvelous. That's what the psalmist is teaching us. It's marvelous and you can't contain it. So ask for an enlarged heart. I just loved the visual of it. It clicked for me. Okay, flip the page. It gets even better. Okay, you go a little farther. You'll see in around verse 59 or so. This is where he talks about, we just got over hearts. He talks about that again. I thought on my ways and turned my feet unto thy testimonies. If you go on the footnotes, this actually links you to the prodigal son. And it's that part of the prodigal son story where he decides that the servants of his father are eating even better than he is, and he should just go home. And I love that they, the footnote people tied these together because I think this is repentance. This is daily repentance. It's that when I get to that point where I'm going to just turn my feet and I'm going to head your way, it's it's this um, vulnerable moment that we're all trying to get to. And I, I love that. So don't miss the footnotes on verse 59. You go a little further, and I love what you see in 71. So it says, it is good for me that I have been afflicted, that I might learn thy statutes. We kind of talked about this already, but this concept of afflictions can bring us closer to God. There is great promise in that verse, that even if the Lord can't deliver you, he will find a way to connect with you in your adversities. I think we've seen that over and over and over again. In fact, I love, since we just studied Job a few, like a month or so ago, that verse in Liberty Jail, when the Lord says, thou art not yet as Job, kind of sometimes seems like this big trump card that the Lord plays, like, you're not nearly as bad as Job. <laughs> you're like it's, But I actually think it could have much more meaning than that. I think the Lord is with Job at that point in time. When Joseph is in Liberty Jail, Job is with God, and Job has become close to God. And in this adversity phase of Job's life, he was closer to God. And I wonder if what the Lord is saying in that verse is not so much, well, you don't have it as bad as he did, as it is, look how close we could be. You are not yet as close as Job is. You could be as Job, where you lean on me, you trust in me, no matter what happens, that's how you can be. That's how you're not yet as Job. And that turns things for Joseph Smith. He endures liberty jail. He deals with all the consequences that come later because he wants that connection to God. He wants to be even closer so I love that you see that in these verses too. Another verse I loved is verse 93, where it talks about a quickening. That's actually a phrase you're going to read a few times in this week's study. And it just means a bringing to life. In the New Testament, when we talk about the babes leaping in their womb, that's a quickening. It's the first time they they feel life. What I loved about this visual is it talks about, well, in 93, I will never forget thy precepts, for with them thou hast quickened me. The more we come to understand God's law and the covenants that we're making, and the more we keep them, the, the more our spirits become alive. And here's something that came to me this week. I don't know if this is accurate for everybody, but that moment when I first feel a baby kick is like pure delight. I can still remember for each of my kids. I can almost remember where I was um, when that happened because it's so powerful to me to know that they are there. And I, I rejoice in those moments. And I started thinking about, spiritually, as we become quickened, I bet there is rejoicing in heaven. When we finally catch, you know, when our hearts are changing, I think our heavenly parents rejoice that we are being quickened, that our, we're not just following the law because it is the law. We're following the law because we understand the law, because we love God and we're anxious to serve him. It's a quickening of our spirits. And I bet it causes similar rejoicing with our heavenly parents as the physical quickening happens and causes rejoicing in, in our physical bodies. I just... Love the comparison of the two. 
You go a little bit further and you'll see even more. I don't have time to go into all of it, but you obviously don't want to miss 105. That's that famous Amy Grant song. I can still remember my sister singing it around the piano. That thy word is a lamp unto my feet. Uh, I love this phrase because it's not it's not a lamp to our eyes. <laughs> it is something that our feet will be able to know where to go. Oftentimes, I think with Revelation, we are asked to step forward, even though we can't see clearly what is next. The mists of darkness are kind of swirling and we struggle. But if we we trust that our feet will know and we move, then we more like it's added to us. There's a great quote from Harold Bailey that talks about this in the notes that sometimes you have to step a little bit into the darkness and then you'll find that the light moves ahead of you. That's the promise in that he'll be a lamp unto your feet. I, I love that one. Another one that's powerful to me is 116. This is inviting us not to be ashamed. Uphold me according to thy word that I might live. Let me not be ashamed of my hope. I love this one. I love all verses about hope, but I particularly love this one because I think he's inviting us to share it. Sometimes our hope is something we hold really private and close, um, but when you choose to share your hope, especially the reasons why you have hope, it is an incredible missionary tool. Peter talks about this in the New Testament that, you know, let, there's going to be men who will ask you the reason of the hope that is in you. And when you share it, it, it beams out at others. Uh, it isn't a hope necessarily in deliverance from your troubles, but a hope in Jesus Christ. Why is it that you can still be standing here when your life is so hard? Let me tell you about my hope in Jesus Christ. That's well, the Psalms teach us over and over again, and I love they see it in this verse. Another one that's powerful to me is 151. This is where he talks about how he is near. Thou art near, O Lord, and all thy commandments are truth. It's It almost feels like that hymn, Dearest Children, God is Near You. That's what it feels like to me. It's this, remember how close heaven is. Another one that I absolutely loved. In fact, you'll see the phrase tender mercies a couple times this week. It's in 156 in this psalm. What I thought was so cool about it is, I went and studied that there's a talk from Elder Bednar all about tender mercies and how they are real, how they're not random, and how they are incredible. He ties them to the Savior and says it's one of the ways the Savior can be with us. Often he uses the Holy Ghost, and sometimes he can be with us through these tender mercies. So I link it in the notes. There's some incredible doctrine in his talk that I don't want you to miss. I love the concept of tender mercies. They're this, what to anyone else would seem circumstantial or a coincidence, uh, they are brush strokes of heaven, and uh, you don't want to miss it. So study up on tender mercies. To wrap up 119, there's more power in on the last page. Around 157, 160, he talks about not declining from your testimony. I thought this was powerful, especially considering Neil L. Anderson's general conference talk, just from this last conference, where he talked about being a peacemaker. And he, I wrote it in my margin. It says, peacemakers are not passive. They are persuasive in the Savior's way. I just love that phrase. That's that's his invitation to us is to, as we are choosing not to decline in our testimonies, we have to find a way to, to speak and to do it in a way that's powerful. And the Savior's way is our, that should be our amplifier. You go a little bit further around 150, you'll see even more. These are where you start to feel these psalms of praise. This, all of them begin and end with hallelujah. It's this kind of big crescendo to these hymns of praise. But I, I loved everything I learned all the way through 119, so don't skip it. These next two psalms are psalms of ascent, or psalms of degrees, as they're sometimes called. And most scholars think that they were sung on the way up 
So ascending to Jerusalem. Remember, Jerusalem is built as a city on a hill. So as they come for festivals and feasts, maybe even that fall festival, that that's when they would sing these songs. Some even believe that these were the psalms that would have been sung on the going up the steps towards the temple itself. I don't know, but I think the idea of them being a something you sing as you rise, as you come closer, it was powerful to me to understand what the doctrine was that's in these psalms. In one twenty-seven, you see guidance about family. Everything about the church is focused on family. In fact, I think it's Elder Benson who talked about that the family is the church and that all the programs and structures that we have are kind of the scaffolding built around the family. They're all designed to bring the family up. And that's kind of what you see in these Psalms. Children are an inheritance to the Lord, just like we see in the family proclamation. It is an inheritance. It is a gift that has been given to you that you should treasure and take care of. Happy is the man that hath his quiver full of children. That's what five says. Into 128, you see a reminder to take joy in the simple things of life. There's this song from, I don't know if you guys ever watched the show called Nashville. We used to watch it years ago. And there's this great song these two sisters sing that's called A Life That's Good. And it's still on a bunch of my playlists because I just love the simpleness of it. It talks about how all that the author of that song wants is a life that's good. And those are, that's found with really tiny, simple things. I give you a link in the notes if you want to watch it. But that's what this chapter reminds me of. It's saying you're going to find joy in family. You're going to find joy in eating from the fruits of your labors. All those things that we saw Adam and Eve make this big sacrifice to come here, they did it so that we could have these kind of joys. And so this psalmist is reminding us to take part in those. You know, if you've ever seen a gardener really enjoy the produce that they produced and, you know, delight in it, I think that's the joy that they're hoping to give us when you read through 128. We'll try and get through this next batch of four a little faster. Um, Psalm 135, I think one of the powerful parts about it is he reminds you that you are chosen. Uh, he's speaking to the children of Israel specifically in this psalm. The children of Israel are chosen by the Lord. The phrase they use in four is they are his peculiar treasure. We've talked about this in a few different ways. There's a bunch of different ways the Lord phrases this, but they are a treasured people. We, as the part of this gathering work, are bringing back his treasure, bringing back his people. And there's power in that. They're, they are a peculiar treasure. You go a little further and you see guidance about false gods. So from 15 to 21, the first time I read through this, I went through kind of fast thinking, okay, this is sort of like what we saw in Exodus, don't worship false gods. And then I had this understanding. I'm telling you guys, this is how I learned <laughs> that the Spirit just sort of layers things on as I study. But this summer, I started to get into a habit of not attending the temple very regularly. I'm gonna, I mean, I could give you a whole bunch of excuses for why that happened. But um, my, my boys had mountain biking practice every single morning, early in the morning, like at six in the morning. And so I made a lot of time for hiking, but I did not make a lot of time for my temple worship. And there was a point in my hiking. I love to hike. It's like my way to clear my head. It's refreshing to me. It's beautiful. And there was a point in my hiking where I found myself kind of, asking the Lord, why can't the temple feel like this? <laughs> why can't the temple feel open and airy and beautiful? Why can't it? There's this part where I go where there's a stream running under this bridge that I love. I'm, I'm, I can, I could describe it for you vividly. I'm putting my hands in the water to cool off my hands. And the impression I get is that although all these things are good and all these hikes and beautiful trails and landscapes are made by God for my enjoyment, what they are not is an opportunity for me to 
give something back to God. They don't ask anything of me. The mountain trails never demand anything back from me. Uh, they, I don't make any sacrifices. I don't help anyone else in that process. And that's why they're not. That's why the temple feels different. The temple is the next level. Both are good. And I don't think there's anything wrong with me loving outdoors and loving my hikes, but it will never replace that communion that I get with God when I'm hiking cannot replace the communion that I experienced in the temple. Because in the temple, he asks things back. He asks me to make a keep covenants and reminds me of my obligations. It's a different kind of experience. And that's kind of what I saw when I was talking, when I was studying about idols. That I don't think I worship a lot of things. I don't think I worship wealth even. I don't know. I don't feel like that's a big issue. But I do find that I am I might be replacing my certain types of worship with lesser types of worship. And I need to get back on track. I went to the temple this week, so I'm, I'm getting there, guys. I'm, I'm repenting daily, just like everybody else. But I, I learned that powerfully this this week as I was studying. Another thing I love is when you go into 136, this is where he talks about mercy. And you're again, this is a verse that has a lot of refrains. It's, um, sorry, a chapter that has a lot of refrains. But I think he's trying to teach us about the evidence of God's love. So as you go through there, you can circle all the evidences of God's love that are around us so that you can be reminded why he is merciful, how we know he's merciful, because it's in the waters, it's in the history, it's in all those things. If you go a little further, you can place and you can find in 137. I wrote that this sounds like a breakup song to me at the top of the chapter, because it kind of does. This is the children of Israel. Surely it sounds like they are at least in exile, if not after the exile period, because they are mourning. They're in Babylon and they are talking about how when they were in Babylon, they were expected to sing their songs of praise and they they couldn't do it. Here's what I thought was really powerful when I was studying this. Um, I think there are times, especially uh, at church, when it's hard to sing. And I don't mean sing songs necessarily, but it's time. It's hard to testify. It's hard to praise. It, it's hard because your life is hard or you feel like you're not getting answers. And I there's a talk from Elder Hall that came back to my mind when I was studying this soul. And it's called Songs Sung and Unsung. And he talks about in those moments when you feel like you can't sing the joyous melodies everybody else is singing. It's part of my time out for women talk. That's why I can remember it well. But it came back as I was studying this. Um, when you're in those moments when you can't, you can't because your heart is just heavy. Listen to the voices of others. Don't leave the choir just because you are heavy and you can't sing like everyone else. Stay in the choir. Because if you stay in the choir, you can stand next to someone with a stronger singing voice and you can just soak up their sound. That's the promise. He, he's asking you to stay because in the staying, you are uplifted. And that's where you find your voice again. So even though it's a breakup song, psalm, I loved what the Spirit brought back to my remembrance as I was studying. So don't miss that. It's in the notes if you want to go deeper into that. You go to 138. This is David worshiping. He is praising the Lord and he's seeking revival, just like we've talked about a few times in the past. You especially don't want to miss like the JST version of eight. I love what it says in eight. It says, the Lord will perfect that which concerneth me. So whatever I'm worried about, the Lord will help, help it come to an understanding. But when you add the JST piece, it's talking about doctrines of the kingdom. So if there's ever a doctrine that I'm struggling wrestling with, like maybe the history, or I felt this when I was studying polygamy for last year's Doctrine of Covenants, it took some wrestling, and the promise is that this, the Lord will perfect that, that which concerneth you, especially about the doctrines of the kingdom. You just have to stay steady. I felt that when I studied the polygamy chapter. I had to work my guts out and study a lot, but I came to an understanding, and I felt at peace. 
that's the promise that you see in 138. You go a little further in 139, and this is again David speaking. He talks about how well God knows him. And I just loved reading that. It's his testimony of how the Lord knows his thoughts before he even thinks them. That he, the Lord is right there, um, and he's praising the Lord for that. And 7 and 8, there's this powerful part where he says, Whither shall I go from thy spirit? Whither shall I flee from thy presence? If I ascend up into heaven, thou art there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, thou art there. It's the same thing we like Lawrence Corbridge's talk about the way where he says, you know, there's the way and then there's every other way. There's no other. Where would I go if I abandoned this gospel? Where where would I go to find comfort and peace? You can hear David's advice on that if you read it in 139. I also love verse 14, where he talks about being fearfully and wonderfully made. It's a key verse. You've probably heard it before. What I wrote in the margins is BYU anatomy class, because this is where this, this doctrine kind of solidified in me. I had studied, I'd been in AP biology and physiology and all these classes in high school. And it wasn't until I got to that class where you actually had a cadaver on the table, as gross as that sounds, that I actually got to see all the systems mixed together. I saw the skeletal system and the nervous system and the muscular system all work together. And that's when I was like, wow, I am fearfully and wonderfully made. That's that's the power of the doctrine. I love that verse for what it teaches me. You go a little bit further and you'll see in 17, this is a key one for me. How precious also are they thoughts unto me, O God, how great is the sum of them. It's the sum of them piece that I love about this verse. Because oftentimes, like I've told you guys, my revelation comes in very thin, almost like vellum layers. <laughs> and when you add up all those vellum layers, I get understanding. But it takes a lot of time and a lot of layers. So I love that that happens with David too. He is, he's not frustrated at his lack of an answer yet. He trusts that at some point there will be some, you can add up all those layers and you'll have an answer. And I just, I love the phrase of it. The math of it just kind of jumped out at me. This last batch of psalms from 146 to 150, uh, they're called the Hallelujah Psalms. These and a few others because they begin and end with that Hallelujah, the oh praise ye. Um, and they have that feel to them. They're joyous. They are reminding you of what you can what you can rejoice in. So, for example, if you go in 146 verse 5, verse 5, happy is he that hath the God of Jacob for his help, whose hope is in the Lord his God. And then they teach us why we should be so happy. So if you look at in the end of Chapter 146, it talks about how the Lord looseth the prisoners, how he openeth the eyes of the blind and raiseth them that are bowed down, how he helps the widow and the fatherless. It almost felt to me like they were actually laying out the miracles of Jesus thousands of years before. You know, like, I don't know when this was written, if this was after the exile or before, but before Christ came and actually fulfilled all of these promises, Jews were singing about how the Lord would do these things, which makes me think that those who, those who converted to the Lord when he was here, probably recognize those tones, right? They recognize that he is the one who's fulfilling all those prophecies. Maybe they sang this at bedtime, or maybe the children sang this at, you know, I don't know, if, if they knew these words, then when they saw the Lord fulfill these promises, it would have connected some dots. And I kind of love that piece of it. Some other things you're going to see, if you go into 147, this is where he starts to talk about the gathering, the gathering of these beloved children of the Lord. And he talks about them as outcasts because at certain phases of the children of Israel become outcasts, especially in the last days, there is this separation. That's why we're gathering so that we can bring them all back to him. I love the way he phrases it. So if you look in three, he healeth the broken in heart and bindeth up their wounds. There is an immediate 
forgiveness and compassion that happens as people are being gathered in. Remember, we already learned that he's not a God of grudges. He is He is a forgiver. And then you see where that goes in four. He telleth the number of the stars and he calleth them by all their names. You could read that and think that he's talking about just the stars in the firmament. And that's possible. But I also think, especially if you look back on where we were in Abraham, when we were studying about the promise to Abraham that he would have descendants as the stars in the heavens. Remember we made that projector that shot stars all over your ceiling? That's the promise that Abraham was given about the children of Israel. So when we gather the children of Israel, we are gathering those stars. And the promise is that he will know every one of them by name. I read a book from Elder Bednar about one-on-one -on -one ministry of the Lord. And that's the feel I got is the Lord doesn't convert in you know, huge mass numbers. We are sent on this one-on-one -on -one ministry because every one of these children of Israel, every one of these stars has a name and has a place and wants, needs to be brought back home. I just love the visual of connect, almost like bookends connecting this doctrine together. Um, you went a little further. I don't have time to go into all of it, but I do love what you see in 11 of 147. This is where it says, the Lord taketh pleasure in them that fear him, in those that hope in his mercy. There are only a few ways the scriptures teach us that we can bring God joy. And this is one of them. When we choose hope, not just hope in healing or hope in medicine or hope in whatever it is we're praying for, but hope that there is purpose to our pain, that there is reasoning behind all of this, that there is a savior, that all, that's what we hope in. And when we choose to hold that hope, use that hope and share that hope, we bring God joy. And don't you just love that piece, especially after what we learned in Enoch about how God can weep. It is also wonderful to know that God rejoices when we make these kind of choices. When you go a little bit further in 148, one of my favorites of 148 is in verse 13. I love the way it's phrased. Let them phrase the name of the Lord for his name alone is excellent. His glory is above the earth and heaven. He is the singular way to come to God the Father, to come back home. He, his name alone is excellent. I love that phrase. 149 is the praise of song. In fact, it encourages you to praise in song. And I, you know, like it says in four, for the Lord taketh pleasure in his people. He will beautify the meek with salvation. Five, let the saints be joyful in their glory. Let them sing aloud upon their beds. It is this, he, you know, we are here to have joy. That's what the Book of Mormon teaches us. I love the way um, President Hinckley says, I don't have it in my margin here, but he says that life is to be enjoyed, not just endured. So it encourages us to have fun and laughter. Doesn't that sound like President Hinckley to you? I think that's what they're trying to teach us here. You shouldn't just rejoice in God. You should have so much joy in his promises that you can't hold yourself back from seeing it. It's that song of redeeming love. If you go on the notes, it's Alma 5, 26, where he talked about, can you feel so now? If you felt the song of redeeming love, can you feel so now? And if you can't, go into the Psalms until it surges back up in you so that you feel like singing again. I, I thought that was one of the most profound things I learned from the Psalms is that by studying other people's rejoicing, especially their rejoicing through adversity, it welled up in me until the point where I felt like I could have it myself. I felt joyous despite my adversity. And that's a gift you can't get. You can't buy. It's something you have to pull out of the scriptures. I think it's why we're invited to study every single day. So I hope you don't miss it.
Thanks again for joining me, you guys. If this content is resonating well with you, I hope you'll consider liking and subscribing, leaving a review if you can, and then also popping over to the full course. In the Creative Come Follow Me course, I provide weekly content in full videos. So full videos, the insights, videos of all three object lessons, as well as all the tools you need to support it. So within the course, you'll find professionally designed printables each week. You'll find extensive study notes so that you can go a lot deeper into the text. You'll also find three years of back content. So for since 2020 in the Book of Mormon, I've been creating weekly content and object lessons to help facilitate meaningful, memorable, simple learning. So if those are tools that would help your family or your class, I hope you'll consider subscribing. Head on over to creativecomefollowme.com. You can find sample videos, sample printables, and an option to subscribe for a month and test it out for your family and see if it's a good fit for you. I hope you enjoy it.